This Scientific American podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, your source for audiobooks and more. Audible.com features more than 100,000 titles, including science books like The Killer of Little Shepherds by Douglas Starr and Sci-Fi Like Extinction by Mark Alpert. Right now, Audible.com is offering a free audiobook and a one-month trial membership to the Scientific American audience. For details, go to audible.com slash Siam, S-C-I-A-M. Welcome to the Scientific American Podcast Science Talk, posted on March 15th, 2013. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... The late 19th century was a blossoming of all forms of science, from anatomy to chemistry uh, to bacteriology. And this started coming together in the minds of some scientists as a way of solving crime. That's Douglas Starr. He's a veteran science writer and co-director of the graduate program in science journalism at Boston University. He's also the author of the 2010 book, The Killer of Little Shepherds, subtitled A True Crime Story and the Birth of Forensic Science, which I've wanted to do an episode about for quite a while. Starr was interviewed by my friend Steve Berkowitz, a New York City storyteller and an instructor with the Moths Community Education Program. Steve is also a reporter for Story Collider magazine, which explores the intersection between science and narrative. So without any further ado, here's Steve Berkowitz talking to Douglas Starr. Doug, why don't you tell us the story of Joseph Vachet? Joseph Vachet was was basically a psychopath before people knew the term psychopath. Uh, He grew up on a farm in uh, rural France. Uh, early on had clerical tendencies and he was sent to a monastery but then uh, sent away for at the time undisclosed reasons uh, he went into the army where for a while he did well although he was he was somewhat brutal in his command of his other uh, soldiers and then uh, as often happens with psychopath he, he fixated on a woman uh, in 1893 he met her in a park uh, dated her a couple of times and her instincts told her that this was a problem and when she tried to extricate herself from him uh, he followed her to her hometown and eventually after a scene shot her and himself uh, they both survived and he was sent to a couple of mental institutions where they thought they cured him and several months after that he embarked on the worst killing spree uh, known at the time uh, I should say his killing spree, he admitted to murdering and dismembering 11 people. He probably killed more than twice as many. Why is it we have never heard of this guy? I think his story didn't come down to us because in the end it was solved and he was executed, whereas Jack the Ripper remained a, a mystery. Can you uh, tell us the story about Alexander Lacassagne? Yeah. What interested me in this period was it was really when forensic science as we know it was born and developed. The you know the late 19th century was a blossoming of all forms of science from anatomy to chemistry uh, to bacteriology and this started coming together in the minds of some scientists as a way of solving crime. And Lacassagne was premier among these scientists. Uh, he founded something called the Institute of Legal Medicine in Lyon. Uh, and he was the first among equals among a cadre of scientists who were using the the tools of modern science 
to solve crimes. So he and his colleagues developed almost everything we think of as forensic science. And what was so exceptional about Lacassagne was in addition to doing all that, he was interested in why people became criminals. So every Sunday he would stroll from his offices to the other side of Lyon to the old prison and he would spend the morning with criminals. He would talk to them and he would help them keep diaries. He was really interested in the criminal culture and what made people behave like this. So it was an extraordinary period of uh, solving crimes and an enlightened approach to understanding the criminal. And, and this man was really the first among equals. Why haven't we heard of Lacassagne either? It was interesting because after the book came out, I got a number of emails and letters from modern forensic scientists saying, finally, somebody has written about our hero. But I do not know why we haven't heard of him. I think, in part, a lot of that period was lost in the chaos of World War I. But really, once I came upon this person and realized what an enlightened person he was, I almost felt a sense of mission you know, to bringing him back from uh, obscurity. So did your uh, decision to s tell this story start with Lacassagne then? One day in desperation, I was in the basement of the library at Harvard Medical School going through some old historical journals, and somebody had written a thesis on the Vachet case and some of the implications. And from there, I started reading the works of Lacassagne, and I realized I really wanted to write about him but in order to make a drama, it would be good to center it around the most challenging case he faced. So it was a sort of a decision to look at both of these characters. To be honest, I really uh, enjoyed writing the chapters about Lacassagne, and the chapters about Vache really made me wince. Can you give us an idea of some of his violence? Maybe show us why uh, those were painful chapters? Uh, Vache's method was he, he was incredibly strong. Uh, he would stalk people. He was a, a creature of the rural areas and of the hill country especially. Uh, and one of the things I did was actually follow in his footsteps. I went where he went so I could describe it. But he would usually find a shepherd or a shepherdess and creep up on them or get them close and grab them around the neck with such force that they almost went limp and then he would stab them uh, and then he would um, sexually abuse and eviscerate the bodies. Lacassagne wrote a manuscript on the case. And even looking at the line drawings was disgusting. The crime scenes were so horrific that sometimes they would traumatize the entire village. An entire village would have PTSD and kind of go nuts. It was so horrific. One of the things that really struck me about this book is sort of the tension between how much information was actually gathered. I mean, it still exists for you to do the research versus how poorly it propagated. You mean in those days? Yes, in those days. Um, very interesting stuff. The science was there. The mass communications was there. People had the telegraph. But folks hadn't caught up to the technology that they had. So in the big centers, I mean, in Lyon, for example, Lacassagne had his criminal museum, his autopsy lab. You know, it was an amazing thing. They've saved it, fortunately. And there was one in Paris and one in Vienna and one in Berlin. But big parts of Europe were rural. And anybody committing a rural crime could pretty much get away with it. They just didn't have the the, the kind of communications that they ought to have. And, and he took advantage of that. You know, I think we had this situation where science was roaring ahead in the major centers, but it just did not get propagated. Uh, sometimes you'd have these rural doctors doing autopsies, but, you know, it would be 
you know, in a drizzly winter's night in the middle of a field with lamplight, you know, and trying not to cut themselves. So the disparity between the frontiers of science and the practice of science were really quite great. I'd like to talk a bit about the the science, the state of the science as it was, and what Lakasanya and others uh, that were working at the time brought to the the idea of forensic science. I mean, in a way, it's sort of the start of the modernization of forensic science. It was the previous way was just to accuse and torture, uh, or, or have. You know, they call them agents provocateurs, have squealers. And these guys felt that the evidence should tell the story. So Lakasani himself did a few things. He really systematized autopsies. Uh, he famously said, a bungled autopsy can never be undone. So he had these things called observation pages, uh, basically what we would call a checklist. Uh, and he would teach his students and anybody he could come in contact with that here is the series of things to do in an autopsy. You open the skull. If you see this, you proceed that way. If you see this, you proceed the other way and you fill this out. And it was incredibly scientific. He learned things uh, like how to tell the size of a body from a leg bone, how to tell the age of a body from the size of the spaces between the growth plates. This was at a time when criminals knew that if they dismembered the bodies, the police could never identify them. Uh, he did a huge study of scars and tattoos. Uh, his colleagues studied teeth. Uh, until then, teeth were just considered chopping machines. But uh, his colleague, Magito, uh, figured out the teeth themselves have growth cycles. Uh, not only in the tooth itself, but in the patterns of teeth that come in. And this was very effective because if all you had was a head, you could use the teeth to estimate the age. Uh, his colleague Magnin was the one who determined that squads of insects will populate a corpse in waves, and you could use insect populations to determine how long ago a body had been killed. This is something that's uh, practiced today. Uh, his colleague Orfila practiced toxicology which you could chemically analyze what kind of poisons may or may not have affected the people. Uh, they analyzed things like carbon monoxide poisoning and how that would kill somebody. Uh, one of the big things at the time was this question of identity. You know, because a recidivist could commit a crime, uh, be jailed, have a record taken, even a photograph taken, uh, go away, get a new tattoo or, sh or shave a beard or shave his head and commit a crime again. Um, so the big question at the time is, how do you identify somebody? Uh, they didn't have fingerprints. And one of La Cassagne's colleagues in Paris named Alphonse Bertillon, whose family was were anthropologists, came up with a system after years of monkeying around in obscurity in which he measured 11 parts of the body, say one of the finger joints or from the knuckle to the elbow or the size of the head. And he found that if you took a number a combination of these 11 measurements, uh, it would rule out suspects to the tune of one in four million, which is almost as precise as, as anything we knew. And this became known as the Bertillon numbers. And the, the practice became known as Bertillonage. And if you look at my book, it, it's diagrams of how they did this. So a person would come in and they would take these 11 measurements and these Bertillon numbers would be put on a card which would follow this person for the rest of his life. Now, what made this interesting was not only was this a positive ID, uh, 
But by using the telegraph, you could send somebody's Bertillon numbers across the ocean at the speed of light, which meant for the first time in history, a person's criminal record down to his precise identity could arrive at his destination before he got there. And this became used, you know, in international criminal pursuits. It was absolutely brilliant. Eventually, it was replaced by fingerprints. One of Lacassagne's most famous uh, discoveries was uh, bullet markings. An old man had been shot to death. And Lacassagne was called in on the case. And he looked at the bullets. Uh, some had hit bone and some stayed in flesh. And he was struck by the fact that they all had similar markings. And until then, it was assumed that if a bullet hit a bone, it would be marked a certain way. So he called in an expert from a local munitions company, and he explained the notion that there are these rifling grooves or spirals in the, in the barrel of a gun, and that gives a bullet a mark. So a young man in town was suspected, and a gun was suspected. So Lacassagne took the body and the gun and some ammunition to his laboratory in Lyon. And times being different then, he could simply call the hospital next door and say, you know, I need a 78-year-old body. And they sent it over and he took the gun and he shot it, you know, in soft tissue and, and bone. This is <laughs> Things were a little more rough and ready then. And he discovered under a microscope that all the bullets had similar tracings. He then would get one of his students, because he ran a graduate program, he got one of his students to do a survey of all the bullets known. I think it was 35 at the time. And thus was born the theory that you could identify a bullet by the rifle marks. So this was the kind of science that was going on, and it was simply extraordinary. Not only did they look at how does the evidence tell what kind of crime was committed, but also what might be going on inside a criminal's mind to cause him to behave this way. What strikes me about the the science of forensics is not just the the sweep of different sciences involved. It's you can divide those into things that happen before death and things that happen during death and things that happen after death. Mm-hmm. Um, or somewhere in the book you talk about death as a pivot point. Lacassagnian and his crew understood that after you die. Uh, the immune system shuts down and all the bacteria that are kept at bay flourish. And this is what causes what we know as putrefaction when the body begins to swell and turn colors. It's just the production of gases and colors by the different bacteria. And that gas will often cause blood to push out a wound that previously had stopped bleeding. So they really were able to understand that by looking at a body very carefully, you could begin to divide those things that happen to the body before death and those that happen after death. Uh, For example, when a body is laid in a certain position after death, because the heart is no longer working, the blood settles by gravity and it makes purple splotches on the area that touches the floor. After a while, this stays in place. So there was a famous case in which a body was found in a trunk and the woman claimed that he was accidentally put there. Lacassagne saw that the splotches were on top of the body and not on the bottom, which meant the person had been forced into a position and killed and then turned. So these were the kinds of things that were so helpful. So it's not just uh, forensic science that is uh, changing here. It is also police methodologies. And I think that perhaps the story of 4K and his role in the Vache case will illuminate that. Uh, Can you tell us a bit about uh, 4K's role? There was a a magistrate in a rural part of France named Emile 4K. He was uh, very ambitious 
and very smart, and there was a gruesome murder committed in his district. And he looked at it, and it now bore the the telltale traits of what we now know as the Vachet killings. And he seemed to recall reading about a similar killing in another part of France. So he put together what's now called a rogatory letter in which he said, I uh, had this kind of a killing. Um, he sent it out to 85 different districts all over the country because Vachet wandered all over the country. And he said, has anybody had similar killings? And if so, can you give me any kind of descriptions? Uh, so people began re- telegraphing back and 4K started making two charts, which was probably the first criminal profile ever compiled. And on one chart, he had all the telltale signs of the killings, you know, strangled, eviscerated, body was in this position. And in the other chart, he had any fragmentary descriptions of the suspect because people would always see some sort of a, a vagabond wandering through towns. In a blue pencil, he started circ- circling similar descriptive pieces. And he came up with this description and it went out and time went by. And eventually, among his many, many assaults, Vache assaulted a woman who was out collecting chestnuts in an area called the Ardesh, and her husband was nearby. And he came and he tackled Vache, and a furious fight ensued. And the villagers came and they subdued him and they had him arrested. Now, most police were really negligent about reading the telegraphs, but the cop in the little village, in the little jail, read this description for 4K and he wrote back to 4K, I've got somebody who might fit his description. So the police brought Vachet to the uh, to the little uh, jail where 4K works, and he then began a, a several-month period of questioning that probably ranks as one of the most brilliant interrogations in criminal history. It, it's not just in the way that uh, 4K actually tracked Vachet down, but he represented an evolution in police interrogation methods as well. You were talking earlier how it used to be, you know, drag in the usual suspects and beat them until somebody talks. That's not what 4K did with Vachet, is it? One of the advances was a deep understanding that you do not get the truth out of people by torturing them. And one of the most famous jurists at the time, Hans Gross of Austria, wrote an entire manuscript on how to interrogate people and how you should not lose your temper and how you work the person up to a sense of comfort and you go over the story, you rehash the story. This is now known as the cognitive interview. It is currently the state of the art in police interrogation. But Hans Gross and his colleagues figure this out and that you work the person up, you go over the story again to trip them up if they've made something up. And as Gross wrote, the person eventually feels the need to unburden himself to you. So Fourquet was a student of modern methods. And instead of torturing Vachet, he brought in witnesses, he discussed, he talked. He couldn't get anywhere. And he realized that Vachet was a cunning man and he was a tough nut. So 4K took a different approach. He said, you know, I'm very interested in this culture of vagabonds. And I should mention that at the time, there were hundreds of thousands of unemployed rural people wandering around. And they were known as vagabonds. It was terrible unemployment. And 4K, in fact, was writing a book about vagabonds and their patterns of immigration. And he said, I'm writing about vagabonds. It's going to take a few days for the paperwork to clear. I know you're innocent, but I could really enlist your help in understanding vagabondage. So how about if each day we meet and we talk about your wanderings? 
And Vashe was skeptical, but 4K showed him his files, and so they began to work as collaborators. By now, 4K had a list of all the suspected killings in every region of France, and the details, and the times. So each day they would begin talking, and he'd say, and where were you there? Oh, I went to this village, and here's where I picked strawberries, and here's where I picked peaches, and here's where I did farm work. And as Forky described it, Fache would be talking, oh, I was in Var at this time, and it would go ding in Forky's head. Yep, that's where that killing took place. So over the days, he was able to elicit from Fache a precise map of where he was and what he did, and he built a very, very strong circumstantial case. And then finally, after many days of interviews, he went into Vache's cell and he completely changed his affect. Instead of being colleagues, he said, Joseph Vache, I accuse you. And then he went through almost in one sentence, this murder on such and such a date, this murder, and on this murder, you killed this girl. And he wrote that Vache was shaken. He almost collapsed. Uh, several hours later, when Fouquet is eating dinner, there's a knock at his door, and it's the guard, uh, and in his hand is Vache's written confession. So Vache is now in custody. He's now confessed to the murders, and the next step is the trial, and that's where Lacassagne comes in again. Yes, and now here's a problem, because Vache's confessed, but his confession is so incoherent that 4K knows he's going to make it on the insanity defense, and he knows this is his strategy. Because this is a time when the insanity defense was getting going. It had happened a few decades before, and people knew if somebody was a raving lunatic, he didn't kill the person, his symptoms did. But Vachet's really going for it. And after weeks of cross-examining him, 4K now realizes he's in over his head, and he brings in the world's most famous forensic scientist, Alexander Lacassagne. Lacassagne interviews Vache for three months. He brought him to St. Paul Prison in Lyon. And despite the fact that there was never a criminal that wouldn't warm up to Lacassagne, Vache never did. You know, Lacassagne had this humane approach, a respectful approach. It never worked. So that's when he decided to let the evidence tell the story. And he went back to the forensic evidence and re-examined it and organized it brilliantly. And the forensic evidence showed that these crimes were committed with method. And even though uh, Vache claimed he went into an insane rage, which he probably did, the approach to the crimes was so systematic and the cleanup and the exit was so clever and his roots were so carefully planned that he was able to prove to a jury that this man, although psychotic, uh, was not legally insane. Now, this trial went on for three days and it was an absolute circus. You know, it was covered internationally. It made the O.J. Simpson case, you know, <laughs> look like look like pedestrian stuff. It was a mob, and they had to had army battalions outside to keep out the crowds. And the judge constantly had to call them to order. And after three days of chaos, and of course, Vache dressed up in a very bizarre way and did everything he could to incite people. And when Lacassagne came in, there was this feeling of calm. And Lacassagne actually wrote papers on how should a medical examiner dress and behave and address a jury with dignity but not in an oversimplified way and respect people's intelligence. So there was just something about the man that inspired confidence and calm. And he was questioned and one by one he went through the killings, holding up autopsy drawings, showing the crime scenes how methodically – these crimes were committed and how similar they were to each other. Uh, it, after that, it really was an open-shut case. Um, the jury found him guilty. 
the question of legal responsibility versus legal non-responsibility came up a lot in the trial. And so the question Lacasagna was addressing was whether um, he had the capability to plan these murders and knew what he was doing at their execution. But there's an, another attack about responsibility, and that falls into the nature-nurture debate. Uh, Lacasagna fa- falling more on the, the nurture side, if you will, and he had something of a nemesis. Yes, the other great criminologist was Cesar Lombroso of Italy, who's actually more widely known, and Lombroso really felt that crime was genetic, and he did huge numbers of studies looking at the skulls of criminals and, and the statues of criminals, and he would testify in murder trials uh, based on somebody's appearance that this guy is a born killer. Uh, there was a famous uh, criminal conference in Rome in 1885 that was so gruesome that women and children were kept out. People from all over Europe had exhibits, and uh, Lombroso had exhibits of the skulls and skeletons of criminals, you know, with little anthropological signals showing he, he, this indicates he has, you know, a, a criminal type development in a criminal brain. And Lacassagne showed up with charts, and he'd correlated crime with uh, crop yields and poverty and lack of education. He was a, a tremendously enlightened man. And yet he did believe in the guillotine for real killers. Uh, but this was the birth of the nature-nurture debate that's with us today. Uh, I should also say it was the birth of the question about the localization of brain function. And as you know from reading the book, after the trial and the execution, the controversy did not go away. And then the great anatomists of Europe dissected Vache's brain to see was there something in there that caused him to do these things? Uh, not so much dissected it, it seemed, but sliced it up like a Christmas ham and gave it to everybody <laughs> who wanted a piece. Everybody wanted a piece. It was the crime of the century. It was the crime of the century. And the, the, the conversation and controversy went on for months as one group after another produced a paper on here's what we found in our part of the brain and here's what we found in our part of the brain. And as you know, this kind of thing is going on today. But instead of dissecting the brains of psychopaths, people are doing MRIs uh, to find if there is something in the structure. Uh, and they're finding some disturbing results. But this whole discussion about is there a localized moral seat of the brain uh, started back then. Despite some people speaking up at the trial on behalf of Vichet not being legally responsible, uh, did Lacassagne's uh, view hold sway? Yes. Uh, to read these transcripts and the follow-up appeals was fascinating beyond measure. I mean, first, there is this whole literature on legal responsibility, uh, you know, and intent and understanding the crime. And, and Lacassagne felt, no, Vache knew what he was doing. Vache's lawyer appealed in a very interesting way. They got him on the fifth murder he committed, which was in 1895, and it was, it was horrible. And they got him because they had evidence. Vache had killed four people before that, and the first person he killed was five weeks after he got out of the asylum. And in his appeal, Vache's lawyer wrote, you have found this man guilty and with full intent and consciousness on a murder he committed um, like a year and a half after getting out of the asylum. What if he was being tried on that very first murder when he just got out? Wouldn't you then entertain the possibility that he really wasn't cured? 
the public hysteria was so high about this that the president of France knew that if he commuted it, he'd be committing political suicide, and so he didn't, and, and Vache was sent to the, uh, to the guillotine. Uh, there are a couple of parts about this that are fascinating. The question came up, why did the director of the asylum let Vache go? And I actually was able to get the asylum records. I took these reports to modern-day forensic psychologists and said, how could this be? They said his crazy symptoms abated, and yet he went out and killed. And, and the best theory I was able to come up with in consultation was he may have been suffering for a couple of things. If he was a schizophrenic in which he heard voices and had these bouts of irrational behavior, his symptoms could have abated with the gentle treatment of the second asylum. But he was also a psychopath, and that's something that doesn't abate. So it's very possible that he was suffering from what they call a comorbidity, in which he was a psychopath who also happened to be schizophrenic. And when the schizophrenic symptoms abated, he still was a, was a psychopathic killer. Anyway, that's how the jury found it. And uh, he was uh, executed, and I was able to find eyewitness accounts of the, the guillotine case. And then, uh, yes, his, his head was taken in a sealed cooking pot to uh, Paris, where his brain was divided up among the great anatomists of Europe who would study it for months and try to come up with a theory as to why somebody would do such a thing. It's that why question that seems ultimately to evade Lacassania. The science of forensics focused so very much on the what and the how, on the physical evidence. And even when he concluded that Vache was responsible for his actions, he drew those conclusions based on the physical similarities and what they showed of, of Vache's intent. But nobody ever quite got to the why. Nobody ever gets to the why. Have we got to the why today? Why do people do such a thing? Have we really figured that out? I spoke to so many psychologists and legal scholars. I spoke to a neurologist who's deeply familiar with this material. And he said, well, here's the circuitry. I said, deeper. Why? He, he, and, and it's to the point of here's why certain people can't resist this, in, this impulse. Here's the dysfunction between the amygdala, sort of that primitive part, and the frontal cortex, the reasoning part. Here's the Maybe here's how, but I said, but the initial impulse, why? And this neurologist actually said, you know what? Now you're talking about something for the philosophers and the clergymen. And to me, what's so compelling about this and what makes this not a historical anecdote, but a story that continues to resonate for us, is these people were confronting a mystery in a way that had never been confronted before. Before that, it was always, okay, it's He's evil, you know. But this was one of the first times people said, it's not good and evil. It's something to do with neurology. It's something to do with the way criminals are performed. But we still don't know why. And all of the main protagonists went to their deaths never knowing why. And even today, you can't talk to any psychologist or legal scholar or even clergy person and know what is the root of this initial instinct to do harm. We still don't know that. Douglas Starr's book, again, is called The Killer of Little Shepherds, and it's one of the titles available as a free audiobook in that offer I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. Just go to www.audible.com slash Siam.
Well, that's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can check out the Google Hangout video featuring Nobel laureate Harry Croto talking with Scientific American Editor-in-Chief Mariette DiCristina. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new article hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American's Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 